Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church Bible study. Today we're going to continue with our study in Revelation chapter 20. And over the last couple of sessions, we've focused on the different views concerning the thousand years. In chapter 20, we've looked at verses 1 through 6. And specifically, I want to focus this morning or today on verses 1 through 3. Um, in light of what we've said about the different views on the thousand years. So let me just read verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, uh, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So those are verses 1 through 3, and so what we've done, as I mentioned in the last couple of sessions, is to look at the different interpretive grids that define the thousand years. But as we move into the content here, the first thing I want to call attention to is a contrast. Notice what John sees. He sees an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. And he opens the, or, and in that pit, he seizes the devil and he is bound for a period of a thousand years. Now, I said this is a contrast. The contrast to this imagery is, um, it's, it's contrasted, I should say, against Revelation chapter 9. And in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, we see a fallen star that was also given the key to the bottomless pit. And it becomes clear from the balance of what we see uh, throughout, the cha uh, throughout chapter 9 that the fallen star is the angel, the angel of the bottomless pit or Satan who then releases demons on the earth in chapter 9, verse 4. And so this satanic activity, obviously authorized by God, is in contrast to what we see here in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 9, the point is, I, I think the chronology is after the thousand years, because after the thousand years mentioned in chapter 20, then Satan is released and he is able to deceive the nations. So if we look at this chronologically, what John is, is, is seeing here obviously precedes uh, what is recorded in chapter 9, because in chapter 9, the angel or Satan is released from the pit and demons do whatever they do on the earth, and we'll get into some of that. So in this vision, it's an unfallen angel. And rather than opening the pit, we are told that the angel, the bottomless pit, uh, we are told that the angel has the key, and his assignment is to bind and imprison Satan. And, and so I think that's, that's the, the exact opposite. So on the one hand, chapter 9, Satan is released. And then here in chapter 20, he is bound and then released. So that's why we've emphasized throughout our studies in the book of Revelation 
that we shouldn't try to to make one-to-one correlations, especially as it relates to the the sequence of events. And since things are repeated throughout, it's important to look at them categorically to see what's actually being described. Now, before we talk about uh, this binding, uh, for the purpose of clarity and the purpose of continuity, uh, we need to emphasize the fact that these are, uh, are symbolic figures that are used to convey real truth. Symbolic figures, I just had a conversation recently with someone who talked about certain things that are to be understood literally. And one of the points of clarity I wanted to bring to them is that the Bible speaks about literal truth, but it sometimes presents it in symbolic forms. And so we do need to make a difference there, a distinction. So there are some some symbolic things, expressions that are used here. Three of them in particular that we'll look at. The first is the bottomless pit. Okay, the idea of a bottomless pit and a key to that bottomless pit. It's obviously not intended to be literal. There is no actual bottomless pit where Satan is being contained. Uh, we would look at it, look at it like a big pen, holding pen or something. No, there's there's no literal bottomless pit. Secondly, a great chain. There is no literal great chain. And then thirdly, the dragon. Obviously, the dragon is referring to Satan, and we'll see that in a moment. So there is no literal dragon. There is no literal chain that's binding that dragon. And that dragon is not being held in a literal pit. The point of the symbolism is that Satan, who is a fallen angel that seeks to bring physical and spiritual harm to the image bearers of God, is limited by God in terms of what he can and what he cannot do until the final day of judgment. Now, some might argue with that, but the bottom line is Satan is a spirit being. He is a created angel, a created spirit being. And even though he rebelled against God and therefore was thrown out of heaven, he is not physically a dragon, nor is he physically contained in a an actual bottomless pit. And by the way, if he is a spirit being, then how do you contain a spirit being in an actual pit? So there is no physical pit, there is no physical chain, and Satan is not actually a dragon. But the truth that is being conveyed here, the reason for the, the idea of a dragon is that he is a predatory being and he is dangerous but he is he is contained he is still under the sovereign rule and authority of God and that is one of the difficulties of uh, biblical theology in terms of understanding God's use of evil in accomplishing his purposes because even though God did not create Satan to be evil he willfully rebelled against the authority of God and therefore is the source of the evil that we see in the world. 
so Satan is not physically contained in a physical location because he's a spirit being. The truth that is being contained is, is being conveyed here is that he is limited by what God allows him to do. He's limited. He is still active, but he's limited. Now, you also note that, um, notice the fourfold description of Satan. And this actually corresponds to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 9, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll read, uh, I'll read from, from uh, chapter 12. In verse 9, in referring to Satan, and, and by the way, chapter 12 is a good parallel to what's actually taking place in these first three chapters. And we'll try to make that connection because the, the challenges against the woman, against uh, the, the challenge in heaven, and then Satan being thrown to the earth, all of that corresponds to the, the time in which he's bound. But in any event, here's what um, we read in chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, uh, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So you'll notice that in the description of Satan here in chapter 20, it follows that same fourfold description. In, um, in verse 2, it says, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, one of the difficulties that people have who try to just read it literally and not just extract the literal truth of what's conveyed in Scripture is that they don't see what takes place in chapter 12 as, a, as a, a, an, uh, a, I guess, a, an example of Satan actually being bound. But that's exactly what's being described, that he being thrown down to the earth is him being bound. He's, he still is active, but he is bound. In any event, in chapter uh, 20, here we see the same fourfold description uh, where Satan is called the dragon and he is bound and we are told that he is sealed and thrown in a pit for a specific purpose. Not just a period of time, but he's thrown in uh, the pit for a specific purpose. And that purpose is so that he might not deceive the nations until the thousand years have ended. Now, I'm going to touch on this here, but in our next session, we'll go into greater detail about that deception, the nature of that deception, because he's bound for a particular purpose. Now, if to go back to the various uh, other interpretive models for the thousand years, if chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, which portrays the final conflict, the final conflict between Christ and the dragon and the beast and all of the enemies of Christ. Um, if, that, if, if that is an actual portrayal of the, thousand, of, of the uh, final conflict, then the thousand years necessarily comes before that conflict. If, so in other words, if chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, is the final conflict, then... The thousand, it's, it's by definition, the thousand years must be before the final conflict. 
because the thousand years, if we just try to follow that literally, what takes place after the thousand years and for the purpose of continuity and context, let me just read from verse four. It says, um, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So here's the point. If the final conflict is chapter 19 verses 11 through 21, and you're trying to follow a chronological sequence, it can't be the final conflict and then another conflict. It's either the final conflict or not. In the same way when we speak of the second coming of Jesus uh, with the rapture, there's either a second coming or there's three or four of them. But if it's the second coming, the second coming is not secret. The whole point of Revelation is to, to uh, tell us that he who rules over the kings of the earth, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, he who was crucified for us is coming again, and every eye will see him. So it can't be a second, second coming, and there can't be a, a second final conflict. It's either a final conflict or not. So therefore, necessarily, the thousand years that are addressed here in chapter 20 occurs prior to the final conflict. And you'll see, and probably again in our next session, you'll see the connection between chapter nine, when Satan is allowed to release the demons from that, that symbolic pit and wreak destruction on the earth. That's after the thousand years that leads to the final conflict. So it can't be both. Now, that being the case, during this, what we're told is that during this thousand-year period, Satan is restrained from deceiving the nations. And after that time, uh, after that time span, we see in verse 9 that he is released and he will deceive the nations, which will uh, precipitate the final conflict. So let's make a few clarifying observations. There are three and one of them is, is um, subbed out a little bit. It's got some subpoints. So here's the first observation. Since we know, even from what we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, Satan is active throughout redemptive history until the final judgment. Now, I want to, I'm not finished with the statement, but let me flesh that out. We know from Scripture from the New Testament epistles and from the book of Revelation itself that Satan is active throughout redemptive history and he will be active until the final judgment. Therefore, his imprisonment simply means that he is restrained. Okay? We know that he is active. There is not a point where he is not active in redemptive history and he will be active until the final conflict and the final judgment now that much is settled 
So whatever is meant by him being in prison or him being chained or restrained, what it doesn't mean is that he's not active. And some, uh, some interpretations, various schools of thought, especially when we see the thousand years that are referenced here in chapter 20 with Satan being restrained, they act as if he's not active. But that can't be if there is still sin and death in the world. So Satan is active and he will continue to be active in the world until the final judgment. So therefore his restraint does not mean he's not active. Secondly, generally then, he is restrained in a number of ways. And what I wanna look at are four ways in which Satan is restrained. And this goes along with our understanding of, or our interpretation of the thousand years. Four ways in which Satan is presently restrained. One, he cannot overthrow the church. He cannot overthrow the church. Matthew 16, 18, after Peter confesses at Caesarea Philippi that, uh, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, then Jesus tells Peter in return that, uh, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father is in, who is in heaven has revealed it, has made this known to you, tells him that therefore I give you the keys to the kingdom. And he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Okay, they will not prevail against it. Now, what we've seen, for instance, in the seven individual letters is that until the Lord returns in final judgment, the church will be compromised, the church will be attacked, the church will be corrupted at various points, all of which are indications of the influence of Satan. Satan influencing individuals, enticing them to sin, bringing doubt, corrupting their doctrine. But in the end, the church prevails because Satan is restrained from destroying the church. He cannot destroy the church. There will be persecutions. There will be martyrdom, but the church will always survive. And so whatever, whatever else Satan cannot do, what, or whatever else the Lord allows him to do and all of Satan's activities are authorized by God. God is using the evil of Satan to bring judgment on the world for Adam acquiescing to the enticement of Satan to begin with. So he does allow evil to run its course, but it's still under his sovereign authority and his rule. It only accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. A second thing that Satan cannot do in terms of him being restrained, or restrained, he cannot pluck individual Christians from the hand of Christ or separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. So he cannot overthrow the institutional church. Congregations may fall and individuals may be martyred, but the church will always endure. 
And not only will he not overthrow the, the institutional church, he cannot pluck individual Christians from the hand of Christ, and he cannot separate us from the love of God, uh, the, the love of God that's in Christ. Two places that we want to look. Uh, John chapter 10, very familiar passage, um, part of Jesus speaking as the great shepherd passage. Uh, but in John chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 28 through 30. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So whatever Satan is allowed to do, will he tempt Christians? Yes. Peter is a great example of that. Right after he confesses Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus begins to talk about the necessity of him going to Jerusalem, suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, be killed, and then be raised from the dead. Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. And it's not that Peter has been, uh, he has been possessed by Satan in a, in a literal sense, but he's been influenced. He's thinking, and then he also tells him, you are concerned about the things of the world and the things of man and not the things of God. So can Christians be enticed? Absolutely. Peter not only uh, is called, is, is, is told to get behind me, Satan, in that instance, but Peter also on the night that Jesus is arrested. He denies that he knows him three times. He denies that he knows him. And so much so that after the resurrection, Peter decides to go back fishing because he knows that he has failed Christ. But Jesus tells him something just before, he's, uh, before his arrest. He says, Peter, Satan has already sought after you. He's already asked for you, but I have prayed for you. He seeks to take you as sifting sand, but I've already prayed for you. And so Peter, after the resurrection, feels that he's not qualified to be a fisher of men and goes back to fishing for fish. And Jesus comes to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked him. And if you love me, then feed my sheep. And the point being is that Peter denounced Christ or denied him. He tried to rebuke him and keep him from the cross, acting the same way Satan did in the wilderness, trying to keep Jesus from the cross. But he wasn't, Satan was not able to pluck him from the hand of the Savior. That's true of all of us. And that wasn't the only time you would say, oh, well, Peter became a model citizen after that. No, even afterwards, uh, after, after the, the, the launching of the church, Paul says that he had to rebuke Peter because he, again, got some things wrong. Uh, Satan will tempt, he will try, he will entice, but he cannot snatch us from the hand of Christ because the hand of Christ is equivalent to the hand of God. But also in Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31 through 39, Satan is not able to separate Christians from the love of God that's in Christ. 
beginning in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in, crea in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan is restrained, but he is active. But in his activity, he is restrained from being able to overthrow the institutional church, and he is restrained from being able to take us from the hand of Christ or to separate us from the love of God. Thirdly, he is restrained from, uh, uh, from harming or overthrowing those, or, or excuse me, he is restrained from marking those who are sealed by the Spirit unto Christ. He is restrained from marking them. Now, one of the things that we do see throughout Revelation, as a matter of fact, um, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, it speaks of those who are the 144,000 who are sealed. Because one of the things that we do see, and it's even referenced here in chapter 20, about those who are marked by the, the beast. So what Satan cannot do is mark those who belong to Christ. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, in that description of the 144,000, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled, them, defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb who, wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, uh, and in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. Now, this is not, and we've talked about this when we went over chapter 14. This isn't referring to a special group. The 144,000 is a symbolic representation 
of all of the true Israel of God, all of those who are part of the true Israel of God, all of those who, who have been redeemed. They are made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they are used in this symbolic way as a number, but it's all of the people of God. So this isn't angels. This isn't a select group of the elect. The 144,000 is representative of the entire body of Christ. And the other thing you'll notice here is that in chapter 20, it indicates that those who will be destroyed when or will be deceived when Satan is released are those who are marked by the beast. So again, let's go back to, to chapter 20. Uh, and it says, um, we'll be in, in verse f uh, 5, we'll, 4, we'll read in verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and, and seated on them were those to whom the authority uh, to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads, or on their hands. So again, that's not a select group. And this needs to be emphasized because so many Christians, not understanding what the mark of the beast is, are afraid. And they think that it might be, someone might sneak the, uh, the mark of the beast on them. One of the arguments against um, certain medical technologies and so forth is, well, that's how they get the mark of the beast in you. Brothers and sisters, let's pause for a moment. I'm not saying that, you know, people are not having chips put in them or whatever, but understand, pause for a moment. There is not a chip that can be put in you. There is not a stamp that can be put on you that will nullify the blood that covers you or the spirit that has sealed you. We cannot, don't be confused by external markings. You cannot be taken and marked by the beast if you belong to the lamb. That's the whole point. Another passage that makes this in a very definitive sort of way is in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. In him you also, whom are, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. And I need to pause there. The guarantee. God's guarantees are guaranteed. It's the only genuine, legitimate guarantee. It's what God has guaranteed. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Satan is restrained from doing is marking those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto Christ. The Spirit's indwelling us is the evidence that we belong to Christ. It is because we are indwelt by the Spirit that we are convicted of our sins and we are able to look to Christ for our salvation. 
and there is nothing that anyone can do in a laboratory, not from the pit of hell. There is nothing anyone can mark you with that will nullify what the blood of the lamb has accomplished. And here's the fourth and final thing that I want to look at. And obviously there are other things that Satan is restrained from doing, but I think we need to look in terms of these things. And that's uh, the fourth thing is he cannot hinder the elect from receiving the gospel. And what that means for us, let me repeat it. He cannot hinder the elect. And by the elect, we mean those that God has chosen since before the foundation of the world to be brought to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. What Satan cannot do is hinder them from receiving the gospel. And what that means is that throughout this period, that evangelism, the evangelism will be as effective and effectual as God has intended. In Acts chapter 13, verse 38, uh, in reference to the spreading of the gospel, wonderful passage, but in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, uh, uh, Luke writes this, he says, and when the Gentiles heard this, speaking of the ministry of the, of the word, the gospel, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't matter what takes place on the earth. Until the Lord has released Satan to deceive the nations, and we'll talk about that, but until that time, during this thousand-year period, during the period of Satan's restraint, what he is restrained from doing is blinding the minds of the people that have been appointed unto eternal life to hear the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world. And if that is an absolute definitive statement, that means those who are, have, have not been called unto eternal life, those who have not been elected by God for salvation, they will continue to reject the gospel and Satan will continue to darken their understanding so that they won't believe. But what Satan cannot do what he is hindered from doing during this period of restraint and imprisonment. He cannot hinder those who have been appointed unto eternal life from receiving the gospel. So he can't keep the gospel from going forth, and he can't keep the gospel from bearing fruit. Well, that brings us to the third overarching point which we want to conclude with. Therefore, with all of those things in mind, with all of the restraints of what of, of those areas in which Satan is restrained, we, we could talk about what he's not restrained from, what, what in his restraint, what he is still free to do. He's still free to tempt. He is still free to, to darken the minds of unbelievers. He's still at, at work. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that he is at work in the minds of those who are the children of wrath. He is at work, but he is restrained. And those four things are things that he can't do during this period of restraint. So what that means is two things. It means on the one hand that this period 
this period of Satan's restraint corresponds to the thousand years. And if that's the case, if this period of restraint corresponds to, his, to the thousand years, then what that means, and this is consistent with the amillennial view of the thousand years, that means the thousand year restraint of Satan is the period of time from Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation. So that is the thousand year period. And that means we are presently living, again, this is the, this is the millennial pos uh, position, the amillennial position. We are presently living in that thousand year period. So the second half of that is the best understanding of the thousand year period should be seen in the context of, uh, of chapter 12. And especially when we see Satan thrown down to the earth and you'll notice in, in uh, chapter 12, when he's, even when he's thrown down to the earth, he tries to wreak havoc on believers. Um, let's look at chapter 12 and specifically uh, from verse 13 and forward. Let's see. Yeah, from verses 13 forward. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman and who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is, she is nourished for time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like, uh, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river uh, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Brothers and sisters, that's the thousand year period that was and is. Satan is restrained. And we see that restraint being exercised even here in chapter 13, where he wreaks havoc on the church, the woman. But she survives and she's nurtured because he can't overthrow the church. But then he brings war on all of those who are individual members of the church, but they are nurtured, they are nourished. He will attempt, he will entice, he will seduce, he will do whatever he can, but what he can't do is undo what Christ has done. The thousand year period of his restraint is the period in which we live, but he is restrained. And there is nothing that has been accomplished, accomplished in the redemptive work of Christ that can be thwarted. So the period of his release refers to a higher level of intense uh, uh, persecution and attempting to corrupt the church in different ways. And that's what we'll look at in our next session. But for now, we just want to focus on the fact that the thousand years is already with us. And the restraint is our ability to do the will of God, even though 
we may face difficulties, trials, and persecution, but we will be preserved because we belong to Christ and we have been marked by him. I, I know that's a lot of information to digest, but we hope and pray that it has been made at least clear in terms of what the thousand years means and what it doesn't mean. And next, in our next session, what we'll pick up on is the nature of the, the assault and attack of Satan when the restraint is lifted, because that's also contained in the text. So what we try to address more directly are, is, is what's meant by those within those first three chapters. So we look forward to joining you again next time, um, but let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you have given us in your written word. We thank you for the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And in him we beheld your glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God. We thank you, Father, for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Not only has he redeemed us from our sins, but he has defeated our enemy. He has crushed him and has put him to an to an open shame. We pray that we are able to live in that victory and that knowledge, knowing that there will be those, those times in which there will be greater persecution against those who call upon you for salvation. But thank you for the knowledge that we are secure because we have been secured by the Lamb of God. Strengthen us in that as we serve. We do lift our brothers and sisters around the world who uh, serve you in places where there is open hostility against those who call upon the name of Jesus. But we know that we are still one body and that the church cannot be overthrown. Thank you, Father, for your grace in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.